The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. Good morning to you, Trinidad and Tobago. Good morning, good morning, welcome to Human Impact for today, Thursday, the 5th of October, 2023. And uh, we are going to our first feature today, Doctors on Call. And already on the line, I have Dr. Rambokas. And uh, we have her guest as well, Ronald Ramroop. So she will do her introductions of him. And let me briefly, let me briefly tell you about Dr. Ramboka. She graduated from the medical school in 2003. She registered with the Medical Board of Trinidad and Tobago and General Medical Council UK. She has worked at the San Fernando General Hospital, Eric Williams Medical Sciences Complex in St. Augustine Private Hospital. Dr. Rambokas presently works at a private office in Valsane and medical associates in St. Joseph's Chaguanas. So make sure that you have your questions and your comments. Good morning to you, Dr. Rambokas. How are you? I'm good, Tosca. Good morning, Tosca. And good morning, Dr. Ramroop. His first name is Ronan. And good morning, listeners. Good morning. So I just want to briefly introduce Dr. Ramroop. He and I actually went to medical school together. So we both completed our MBBS at the University of West Indies, St. Augustine in 2003. But he followed... Um, with a doctorate of medicine and pediatrics from the same institution. And as a consultant pediatrician at Eric Williams Medical Sciences Complex, he developed a keen interest in cardiac diseases, which propelled him to seek advanced specialization in the field. So in 2013, Dr. Ramu pursued a fellowship in core cardiology at the University of Toronto. Here, he honed his expertise in congenital heart disease at the Labatt Family Heart Center Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. He further amplified his skills in 2016 by undertaking a fellowship in pediatric echocardiography, focusing on imaging congenital heart lesions using various techniques such as transthoracic and transesophageal echocardiography, as well as fetal echocardiography. In 2018, he had also completed a fellowship in congenital interventional cardiology, which involves cardiac catheterization for diagnosing and treating congenital heart defects. Currently, Dr. Ramroop serves as a pediatric cardiologist at the Wendy Fitzwilliam Children's Hospital at the Eric Williams Medical Sciences Complex. So welcome, Dr. Ramroop. Hi, good morning, uh, Dr. Ramokas. Thanks for having me on the show. So we both know we graduated a while ago. Um, how long have you been practicing medicine and what was your motivation for choosing pediatrics? So um, I've been practicing medicine for the last uh, 20 years. Uh, my, my journey to pediatric cardiology was a combination of personal experience, uh, passion and the realization of the profound impact one could make in a young patient's life. Uh, firstly, during my medical training, I was always drawn to the intricacies of the heart. It's an incredible organ, the center of our circulatory system and essential to life. However, it was during my rotations in pediatrics that I felt a deep connection to working with children. Their resilience, optimism, and genuine spirit, even when faced with health challenges, was truly inspiring. 
And then during my pediatric training, uh, one of the children I worked closely with had a heart condition. The unwavering support she received from her medical team deeply moved me, witnessing that that uh, the journey from the initial diagnosis to surgical interventions and the follow-up care made me realize the profound difference a dedicated team of health professionals, including the pediatric cardiologist, can make in a child's life. It's not just about treating the heart, it's about understanding the emotional and psychological implications for the child and their family and guiding them through the entire process. So choosing pediatric cardiology allowed me to combine my passion for cardiology with the profound reward of working with children and the opportunity to make a lasting difference in the lives of young patients and their families to see them grow and thrive despite initial challenges is truly fulfilling. So could you um, explain to us um, what exactly you do as a pediatric cardiologist? Um, I know that would be studying and treating certain heart conditions in uh, kids. And um, how many pediatric cardiologists are there in Trinidad? Um, so, so pediatric, well, there are uh, at least three, probably soon four pediatric cardiologists around Trinidad. Um, uh, pediatric cardiology is a subspecialty of pediatrics that deals with heart conditions in infants, children, and adolescents. So while cardiology typically focuses on heart diseases in adults, pediatric cardiology specifically addresses heart problems that occur in younger patients from the time they're in the womb up to their teenage years. So the heart is a, a complex organ and its development starts very early in fetal life. Sometimes issues can arise during this development leading to congenital heart defects. And these are problems uh, with the heart structure that are present at birth. Pediatric cardiologists not only diagnose and manage these congenital defects, but they also handle acquired heart conditions that can develop after birth, such as infections affecting the heart or issues with its electrical system. So our role involves a lot of collaboration. We work closely with pediatric cardiac surgeons, neonatologists, and other specialists to ensure that our young patients receive the best care possible, whether it's through non-invasive diagnostic tools like echocardiography or interventional procedures, or even heart surgery. Our ultimate goal is to help children with heart conditions lead as normal and healthy lives as possible. And at what time during fetal development would you say that um, you know cardiac defects occur in um, fetuses, and um, are, what are the most common causes? Is it are like uh, medication, viral illnesses? Um, so, so a heartbeat is could be detected as early as six weeks, but then uh, that initial heart tube goes through a process of of looping uh, to form a, a heart with its four chambers and the vessels that come off of it. Uh, usually, around the first trimester is most important for cardiac development. So up to around 12 to 16 weeks. Um, the, the, the causes of congenital heart disease are, are often not, can't, can't be figured out. And, and, and certainly even with all resources, more than 50 or 60%, we will never know. Common things could include um, chromosomal defects or, or genetic defects. And sometimes viruses can cause uh, uh, fetal heart problems as well. So what are some of the more common disorders that you encounter in your practice at Eric Williams Medical Sciences Complex? Um, so we see a wide range of heart disorders. Uh, some of the common things include well, congenital heart defects, as mentioned, which is a broad category and includes conditions like a ventricular septal defect, which is hole, which would be holes between the uh, heart's lower chambers, atrial septal defects, which is a hole between the upper chambers, and more complex things like tetralogy of flow or transposition of the great artery. 
There are also cardiac arrhythmias, which are abnormalities of the heart's electrical system, leading to irregular heart rhythms. For example, uh, supraventricular tachycardia, or SVT, uh, and Wolf-Parkinson-White, or WPW. And rheumatic heart disease and Kawasaki disease are two other important, more like acquired diseases. Rheumatic heart disease is a complication of untreated streptococcal infection that can lead to rheumatic fever and can result in valve problems in the heart. And Kawasaki disease is an inflammatory condition that can affect the coronary arteries of the heart. The coronary arteries are vessels that supply the heart muscle with blood. And lastly, cardiomyopathies, which are conditions where the heart muscle becomes enlarged, thickened, or rigid, uh, which common ones being hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or dilated cardiomyopathy. And, and what's the difference between hypertrophic and dilated cardiomyopathy, which is so, both enlargement of the heart? Yeah, so so um, the the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is is um, thickening of the heart wall, and and although the heart may be a bit bigger, the the, the chamber of the heart is usually left ventricle becomes much smaller, so it's not able to fill with blood blood properly, although it might pump very strongly. In dilated cardiomyopathy, the chamber itself becomes very enlarged. Uh, the muscle is often weakened, um, and uh, and uh, that's that's the main difference between the two. So output is usually a problem in dilated cardiomyopathy. And how common are these disorders that you encounter? Do you think that congenital is more common as opposed to acquired? Uh, certainly. Um, uh, so as for prevalence, congenital heart defects are probably most common with defect globally. It's estimated that close to 1% or about 8 in every 1,000 newborns will have a congenital heart defect. But the good news is that with advancements in medical and surgical care, many children with congenital heart, heart defects now live well into adulthood. Acquired conditions vary in their prevalence. Uh, for instance, rheumatic heart disease has become much less common in developed countries um, due to early treatment of streptococcal infections. But it remains a significant concern in some developing nations. And how do we commonly detect? You you had mentioned echocardiography. What what is an echocardiography? So um, when we evaluate patients for heart disease, there are a number of different um, uh, investigations that could be done. And an ECG, which looks at the electrical activity of the heart, which involves putting some stickers onto the chest and measuring the electrical activity through the skin, it's non-invasive. Similarly, a chest X-ray is like a picture of the chest and heart, which is also non-invasive and includes a small dose of radiation. And then echocardiography, which is non-invasive again, and shows in great detail, it's like an ultrasound of the heart that shows a lot of detail about the, the structure and function of the heart. And with respect to congenital um, disorders, is it um, mostly, um, because that is something that kids are born with, is it mostly valvular disorders or, or disorders of the electrical activity or the structure of the heart itself that you commonly encounter? So um, just in order of, of how common they are, the most common thing is a bicuspid aortic percent. Um, followed by the holes in it between the upper chambers or lower chambers, which are known as ASDs and VSDs, respectively. Those would be the most common. Uh, there's a, another type of heart disease called cyanotic heart disease, which is severe but less common. And uh, do these um, disorders require surgical intervention at some point? Uh, it depends on the on the type of um, the type of disease. So, for instance, small holes in the heart. I tell people to think of them like like a cut that will heal, uh, and they often get smaller over time. But if the defects are large, 
and, and, and the heart function is compromised, for instance, if the baby isn't growing well or is otherwise medically unwell, uh, then those ones would need surgical intervention. And the more complex ones almost always need surgical intervention, where sometimes arteries could be connected to the wrong place or, or the defects are um, large enough that we know that they will not close. Right. And um, what symptoms do these pediatric population normally have when they have these congenital disorders, uh, especially more common ones? Um, uh, uh, the common things would be what we call heart failure. Um, heart failure in infants uh, commonly is not because of a problem with the heart muscle being weak, as it would be in adults, but more commonly it's because of blood going where it's not meant to go. So in common, a common example would be a hole in the heart where blood will go from the from the high pressure left side to the low pressure right side and from there to the lungs. Um, that kind of overflow of blood to the lungs will manifest with symptoms like, like fast breathing, uh, difficulty with feeds. And for instance, the child will appear hungry, but will get breathless very easily with feeds. Uh, obviously that feeding is like exercise for a young baby. Um, uh, poor weight gain, excessive sweatiness with feeds. Uh, those would be the turning blue would be the main things to look out for that might indicate heart disease. Okay, thank you, Dr. Ramu. We have to take a short commercial break, and when we come back, we'll talk about acquired heart disorders in the pediatric population. The SouthX International Expo 2023 is on at Gulf City, the largest and most important business expo in South Trinidad. The SouthX International Expo will be held at the Gulf City Shopping Complex in La Romaine from Wednesday 4th to Sunday 8th October. The Trade Expo will be open absolutely free to the public from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. daily. Thousands of exciting products will be on display and you will be able to check out the latest developments from almost every aspect of business. On Sunday 8th October, our signature car and truck show will be held featuring some of the world's most expensive and exotic vehicles. The SouthX International Expo, Gulf City Shopping Complex, La Romaine, Wednesday 4th to Sunday 8th October. Contact them at 735-7503 or 789-3874 or you can email them South events at gmail.com southx2023 is sponsored by southern medical clinic and jerry's car parts warehouse limited talking to your plants can actually help them grow faster researchers discovered that talking to your plants really can help them grow faster they also found that plants grow faster to the sound of a female voice than to the sound of a male voice it was found that plants react favorably to low levels of vibrations around 115 to 250 hertz being ideal these mild vibrations improve communication and photosynthesis which improves growth and the ability to fight infection in plants on the other hand harsher strong vibrations have a negative effect do you want to learn more about the world around you? The stories of the world have the power to transform our lives every day. Tune in to Freedom 106.5 FM daily or log on to tbcradionetwork.co.tt forward slash Freedom 106.5 for Freedom Moments. Freedom Moments. Explore the world with us, then speak your mind on Freedom 106.5 FM.
Introducing new KFC Nuggets. Offer starting from $24.95. Enjoy now before they're gone. Only from KFC. The best insight. Instant feedback. Accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. So welcome back, and we will go straight to Dr. Rambokas and Dr. Ramboop, Ramroop, sorry, in today's session of Doctors on Call on Freedom 106.5 FM. Thank you, Tosca, and thank you to our listeners. Um, we have today Dr. Ramroop, who's a pediatric cardiologist, and we're talking about pediatric heart diseases. We just went over some of the congenital or uh, heart diseases that kids are born with, and now we're de dealing a little bit with acquired heart diseases. And um, he mentioned two of the acquired heart diseases. One is rheumatic fever and one is Karasaki's disease. So we're going to touch a little bit about rheumatic fever. So you mentioned, Dr. Amro, that rheumatic fever is caused by a bacteria called Staphylococcus. And oh, sorry, yeah. And how how do patients normally get this disease, and how can it affect the heart? Um, so, so rheumatic fever is an inflammatory disease that can occur as a complication of untreated or inadequately treated uh, group A streptococcal throat infection, commonly known as strep throat. Uh, while it can affect multiple organ systems, its most serious complications involve the heart. Uh, its effects on the heart include uh, carditis, which is uh, inflammation of the heart itself. Carditis can affect all three layers of the heart, the endocardium, which is the inner lining, the myocardium, which is the muscle layer, and the pericardium, which is the outer lining. When the valves of the heart are involved, especially the mitral and the aortic valves, it leads to what is termed valvulitis. Uh, valvulitis is inflammation that can cause the heart valves to thicken, scar, or deform over time. Uh, this could result in two main problems. One is stenosis, where the valve opening narrows, restricting the blood flow. Or secondly, regurgitation or insufficiency, where the valve doesn't close properly, leading to blood flowing backward. Uh, recurrent episodes of rheumatic fever can lead to cumulative damage, so further worsening of the valve function. Uh, this condition, when it persists, is known as rheumatic heart disease, which can be debilitating and requires long-term care and potential surgical intervention. So, so both valves are on the left side, that is the aortic and the mitral valve, right? So the uh, bacteria strep A inflames those valves and causes dysfunction. So how normally, for instance, with uh, say stenosis or mitral valve regurgitation, how can these patients present? Um, so similarly to the heart failure that, that we were discussing previously, so um, uh, things like fast breathing or, or breathlessness, and especially in an older child. Uh, children with rheumatic feet are susceptible to rheumatic fever between the ages of 5 to 14. Uh, so they will experience things like reduced exercise tolerance, uh, shortness of breath, sometimes at rest, um, a very fast heart rate, uh, poor weight gain, uh, swelling of the hands, feet, or around the eyes, um, and, and, uh, and um, decreased, I think I mentioned, decreased exercise tolerance. Chest pain could also present, especially in the acute phase, but even in uh, more chronic phases as well. And how can these patients be treated if once these are detected, because you said history examination, and that would include, you know, an ECG, a chest x-ray and a heart ultrasound or echo. How, when once it has been diagnosed, how can these patients be treated? So the 
primary treatment for rheumatic fever is antibiotics, which is mainly penicillin or its alternatives for patients who are sensitive to penicillin. Uh, the first step is to eliminate any remaining group A strep bacteria. So even if the throat culture is negative, meaning no, no bacteria is found, if the clinical suspicion is high, treatment is generally started with a course of antibiotics. Um, aspirin or other anti-inflammatory drugs are used to reduce inflammation, pain, and fever in the acute phase, in the rheumatic fever acute phase. Um, and in more severe cases, corticosteroids might be used. And then the next phase of treatment is long-term prophylaxis, which is meant to prevent recurrent episodes of rheumatic fever, which can further damage the heart. So long-term antibiotic prophylaxis um, is known as preventative treatment. Uh, it can last for several years or sometimes even a lifetime, depending on the level or the degree of valve involvement. So for any surgical intervention, or is it just dental work? Uh, patients who have, say, these valvular disorders, they have to take antibiotics prior and during? Yes, they, they should have antibiotic prophylaxis if they don't have rheumatic fever and, and valve disorders. And this is to prevent um, bacteria from colonizing these valves? Correct, that's right, because that could cause further damage to the valve. Right. And and damaged valves are more susceptible to, to infection. Right. Has anyone, uh, do we have any um, data on um, the incidence of rheumatic fever? Is it still common? Um, it is much less common now. And uh, one of the things that make rheumatic fever uh, common, especially in the, in, in, uh, in developing countries, is uh, poor, poor, like, uh, poor living conditions, for instance, or or not having access to antibiotics. It's transmitted from person to person, the bacteria. And um, uh, I've noted that that during the period of COVID, where we have all been practicing precautions to prevent COVID transmission, I think uh, streptococcal transmission has been reduced as well. So there's rheumatic fever is very, numbers are very low now. Okay, great. <clears throat> Could you tell us what exactly is Kawasaki's disease? Uh, so Kawasaki disease is an acute febrile illness. It is of unknown cause uh, that primary, primarily affects children. Uh, while its exact etiology or cause is unknown, uh, it's believed to be related to a combination of genetic factors and an abnormal immune response to an environmental trigger, possibly an infection. Uh, and there's a variant called MIS-C uh, that, 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 that is um, likely due to the coronavirus itself. And, and uh, if you have um, COVID, especially in kids, what age group is normally affected with Kawasaki's disease? Uh, so, so the, yeah, so the variant of Kawasaki disease, known as as MIS-C, uh, is is um, usually the peak is around eight eight years of age, eight to ten years of age, um, but it could affect children as low as two years of, of age and as as high as eighteen, and there are rare variants that can affect adults as well. Can you explain what MIS-C stands for? Uh, it's, yes, it's multi-system multi inflammatory syndrome in children. And it, it looks a lot like Kawasaki disease clinically and and, uh, and and the investigations as well. So it it infects what type of organs? Is it all organs or is it the vascular system? Yeah, so it's the, the, the vessels become inflamed. So it's called it's a, a type of vasculitis. Uh, but because vessels are, are found in, in pretty much every organ, it could cause... Uh, disease in every system. The cardiac system is the one that's most often uh, a problem in terms of the kind of involvement it can have. 
And what type of symptoms will these patients have, or how do will they present? So they'll present with a high fever, typically lasting five days or more, red eyes or conjunctivitis without a discharge. A rash could be on the on the trunk um, or genital area, a bright red swollen cracked lips or strawberry-like tongue, swollen hands and feet with a sometimes with a purplish red uh, color to the palms and soles, and swollen lymph nodes, particularly in the neck. Right. And what type of tests do we normally check? Do we check their inflammatory markers and um, do we routinely uh, do cardiac checks on these patients? Yes. So any any patient who's thought to have this uh, systemic vasculitis, either Kawasaki disease or MISI, would go through a number of tests. Um, the number, apart from the, the clinical findings, we do a number of blood tests to check the blood count, uh, the liver function and the kidney function and the inflammatory markers, as you mentioned. And how can Kawasaki disease in particular affect your heart? So it's 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 primarily known for its, for its cardiac complications, although it's a vasculitis that could affect a number of different organ systems. Uh, mostly there's cor coronary artery abnormalities, which is the most severe cardiac complication uh, and relates to the development of abnormalities in the coronary arteries, which supply blood to the heart muscle. So these could include dilation or widening of the vessels, or more concerningly, aneurysms or bulging of the arteries. It could also cause myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle, which can reduce the heart's ability to pump and lead to arrhythmias. And in some cases, valvular heart disease, where the valves become inflamed, uh, valvulitis, uh, similar to rheumatic heart disease, uh, as we, uh, rheumatic fever, as we discussed, and a pericarditis, which is inflammation of the pericardium, which is the sac-like covering of the heart, can sometimes lead to fluid accumulation between the heart and the pericardium. Right. And how can these patients be treated? Is it medical management first? And at what point do we say that surgical intervention is necessary? So, so treatment is primarily medical and only if there's uh, valve damage, which is exceedingly rare, uh, that, that uh, again, medical management and at the very last stage, surgical management would be, would be advised. Um, uh, the treatment in medical management includes intravenous immunoglobulin, or also known as IVIG, IVIG, which are proteins that help reduce inflammation are typically administered uh, in the hospital. And this treatment is most effective when given within the first 10 days of the onset of fever. Aspirin can also be used, and high doses of aspirin are often given to reduce inflammation and decrease the risk of clot formation within the affected coronary arteries. Uh, once the fever subsides, the dose can be reduced and is often continued for several weeks. And then follow-up, of course, and monitoring will include an echocardiogram, which are done uh, depending on the on the um, on the degree of severity of involvement of the heart. They're performed regularly to monitor the coronary arteries and other aspects of heart function, and that might go on for several weeks, months, or even years. Right. And could you tell us if the prognosis is good for these patients? Is this lifelong disease that they would have something that they would have to live with? Uh, so fortunately, uh, once it's picked up early, and I think uh, most of most of our pediatricians are very sensitive to this this diagnosis, despite it being relatively rare. Uh, but early treatment uh, is associated with a very good prognosis, and uh, the majority of patients do very well and don't need follow up beyond a few months or a year after the initial event. And how do you monitor these patients? Do they have to make regular ECGs and heart ultrasounds? 
Yeah, so because the coronary arteries are the and, and the valves are the main things that could become involved, that's best assessed with echocardiograms. So we'll typically do echocardiograms very frequently in the acute phase and then less frequently in the convalescent phase. It's the mainstay of our um, uh, assessment of these patients. Let's say, for instance, an adult who has, I know you may not know much about adults, um, who has heart disease, uh, as in ischemic heart disease, where blood flow is limited. How is the treatment regime different? Yes, yeah, so that's that's tough for me because I do focus uh, solely on pediatrics. But um, uh, our treatment of heart failure is, is, kind of, is kind of a trickle down in terms of what we use in pediatrics compared to adults. Uh, because most studies would, of course, be do, be done in adults, and uh, the principles of management are similar uh, between peds and adults, and it will include uh, use of medicines called diuretics, which make you pass more urine, reducing the blood volume and reducing the work on the heart. Uh, ACE inhibitors, an example is enalapril, and in the adult world, you use several different newer versions. Um, beta blockers, propanolol or tenolol, and there are other newer ones like covetolol and metoprolol that are common in, in, in adults. Um, and and uh, some of the other types of medicines that can be used as well. But those three are like the means, the principles of management for heart failure from ischemic heart disease or anybody with reduced contractility, like our NPs, we'll see that mostly in like dilated cardiomyopathy or myocarditis patients. Do we normally anticoagulate kids as well? Um, if, if they have a thrombus, for sure. If they have reduced function, so we use, um, so we like the function measure number called the ejection fraction. And if it's more than 55 or so 60%, consider that normal. Only if it's less than 30%, most people would anticoagulate. But it's not done routinely. Okay. Only in those specific scenarios. So thank you, Dr. Ramro. We have to take a short commercial break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about pediatric cardiology. Kids is on October 15th, and if you're not registered, you can do so this Saturday, October 7th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Long Circular Mall. RBC Race for the Kids, October 15th. Register at rbcraceforthekidstt.com and pay with your debit or credit card or visit RBC Shogwanas, St. Clair, Trinity, and Scarborough. It's a family fun race. Your solution to talk is here. The Charmaine Ford Show is on Freedom 106.5 FM, hosted by TNT's very own Charmaine Ford. It's innovative, informative, educational, and it's fun. It's not just talk, it's a whole lot more. It's all about making that connection with you. Join us on Sundays from 12 noon to 3 p.m. We're bringing the conversation to legend legendary celebrity guests, increasing awareness and finding solutions on different topics and issues while keeping it exciting. Call the Freedom 106.5 FM hotline and join the conversation at 627-3223 or 625-2257. Listen to the podcast on our website, tbcradionetwork.co.tt forward slash Freedom 106.5 FM or tune in for the live stream on the Freedom 106.5 FM Facebook page. The Charmaine Ford Show, Sundays from 12 noon to 3 p.m. on Freedom 106.5 FM for Talk That Matters. And this Sunday, it's her birthday. Here's how you can join in the celebration. The best insight. Instant feedback. Accountability. The all-new Talk Radio. Freedom 106.5. Calling all business. 
business owners. Do you want your business to succeed in the age of technology? GM Technologies is here to help. We provide all the digital services that your business requires. Revamp your website to that modern, sleek finish that you always yearned for. Learn about your customers' moods and ages via audience demographics. Assess your e-commerce revenue performance via data analytics and so much more. Contact GM Technologies at 391-4837 for your free consultation today. The Southex International Expo 2023 is on at Gulf City, the largest and most important business expo in South Trinidad. The Southex International Expo will be held at the Gulf City Shopping Complex in La Romaine from Wednesday 4th to Sunday 8th October. The Trade Expo will be open absolutely free to the public from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. daily. Thousands of exciting products will be on display and you will be able to check out the latest developments from almost every aspect of business. On Sunday 8th October, our signature car and truck show will be held featuring some of the world's most expensive and exotic vehicles. The Southex International Expo, Gulf City Shopping Complex, La Romaine, Wednesday 4th to Sunday 8th October. Contact them at 735-7503 or 789-3874 or you can email them South events at gmail.com southx2023 is sponsored by southern medical clinic and jerry's car parts warehouse limited it is 936 in the nation's capital and this is freedom 106.5 fm thank you for joining us and we're going back to dr nadira rambokas and doctors on call thank you tosca and we're here today with dr ramrup he's a pediatric cardiologist and um, I see Dr. Ramrup that you are trained in echocardiography. One is transthoracic and one is transesophageal. Could you explain the difference between the two and, and what each procedure uh, looks for? Sure. Um, uh, so transthoracic means an ultrasound uh, that's done echo that's done through the through the chest. So the probe is placed on on the chest and uh, the front. Um, uh, transesophageal is th uh, when you put a different specially made probe into the swallowing tube. Uh, the transesophageal is is um, not very often done in children, uh, but it is useful, for instance, if they're anesthetized. Um, they both look for the same thing, which is looking at the structure and function of the heart. The advantage of transesophageal echoes is that it will look at the, um, it, uh, because the swallowing tube comes very close to the heart, the images are often uh, much better in terms of the the, uh, the fidelity of the pictures obtained. Um, most times in children, as I said, it's not not required to do that. But the disadvantage, of course, is that they have to be anesthetized to tolerate that probe going down this wall into. Right. Uh, switching gears a little bit, have you seen a lot of um, pediatric COVID heart disease cases and how common is it and what exactly, um, how does COVID affect um, the heart? So um, fortunately, children overall are, are not as severely affected by, by, by the coronavirus as, as compared to adults. Um, heart disease in the acute infection is relatively rare. Um, the main thing, of course, that we look for from a cardiac point of view is myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart. Uh, that can happen and cause the heart to not, not beat as strongly as it should. Um, in, in that setting, fortunately, with, with uh, aggressive anti-inflammatory treatment, they, they would resolve. 
uh, and unresolved completely. So, so it's um, good from that point of view, but of course has to be picked up early and managed early to get a good outcome. Uh, COVID, apart from the acute COVID infection, is, uh, what kids do have uh, much more commonly is uh, a rear, how do you say, like an inflammatory reaction secondary to it. So the virus is cleared and, and they go on to have a, basically an immune response to that viral antigen and, and um, that causes a vasculitis essentially, which is the MIS-C that we were talking about. More, up to 80% of MIS-C patients will have some element of heart, heart involvement, whether it's fluid around the heart, which is called a pericardial fusion, or, or valvulitis, which is inflammation of the valve, or, or the coronary arteries, which could become dilated. And in, in the case of the myocarditis, that reduced reduced cardiac output and poor function, as we just mentioned. Right. Do some of these pediatric um, cases have, um, uh, say, rhythm abnormalities from myocarditis or myocarditis? Yes, um, they, they can have rhythm abnormalities. Most often, the heart goes fast. Um, and once we treat the underlying inflammation, it will get better. In very severe cases, it could affect the conduction tissue of the heart or its electrical system and cause varying degrees of what we call AV block, where, where the pacemaker of the heart, which is in the top chambers, uh, could no longer communicate with the, with the bottom chambers and you get a discoordinated um, beat that can often be very slow. Uh, again, anti-inflammatory treatment or specific medical treatment to increase the heart rate or decrease the heart rate depending on what's needed, um, would, would generally get the patients through that phase. What generally is the anti-inflammatory treatment? So, um, similar to Kawasaki disease, the treatment uh, goes along those lines. So, the IVIG, which is the intravenous immunoglobulin, which is an antibody harvested from a number of patients um, or, or donors, um, it, because those antibodies are very anti-inflammatory. Um, in addition to that, corticosteroids, which may be in the form of prednisolone, which is an oral uh, corticosteroid, or methylprednisolone, which is an IV version, are typically used in the acute phase as well, and then tapered very slowly over a few weeks. Right. What about, um, because adults use omegas on turmeric, uh, they, they say these are anti-inflammatory. Do we use those in the pediatric population? Yeah, so omega, omega-3s are probably one of the few agents that have been sh shown, non-medical agents, that have been shown to, to be effective in patients with heart disease in adults and in children. And there's good data to support the use of omega-3s, especially in those who have reduced heart function. The turmeric might be a little more controversial. It is known to have anti-inflammatory properties, but whether it benefits heart patients in particular, I don't think the the data is there to say that, but there's very little side effect, so probably not much harm in using it. It is, however, anticoagulant, has anticoagulant properties, so one should be cautious if you're already on uh, aspirin or warfarin when using turmeric. Right. And could you tell us about any other medication, uh, especially in the pediatric population, that is harmful to our heart? Medication... Um, uh, a, so what do you mean by like a medication as harmful or do you mean be, remedies? Yeah. Conventional <laughs> medication or for instance, um, uh, herbal medication that uh, patients yeah. normally try so, to take. Yeah, yeah, so we would always advise um, many of the herbal medications could affect 
or interact with medications that we give for the heart. So there's always caution and one should always check each one in a formulary before using and probably safest to not use a herbal, a herbal remedy. Um, those could affect not just the blood thinning, but it affects the liver function sometimes, which will affect how well uh, cardiac medicines work or the kidney function, which affects how well cardiac medicines work. So caution always with herbal remedies. So besides omegas, are there any other uh, say supplements out there that are cardioprotective? Um, people talk about that there's there is some data to suggest that there might be benefit from using carnitine and uh, and or CoQ10, coenzyme Q10. Uh, these are commonly used in the adult populations. The the data to support its use in in pediatrics is much much uh, rarer. Um, with carnitine, for instance, it is helpful in those who have a known carnitine deficiency or known metabolism, a difference in the metabolism of carnitine. Uh, but for the general population, it hasn't been supported yet. But if, the, if one does not know if there's a carnitine problem, then there's little harm in, in introducing a carnitine supplementation. So you would suggest everything with moderation? Pretty much, yes. All right. Thank you, Dr. Ramroff. We just have to take a short commercial break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little more about pediatric cardiology. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. This is Freedom 106.5 FM. Uh, good morning, good morning. And we head back to Dr. Rambogas with Doctors on Call. Thank you, Tosca. And we welcome back Dr. Ramroop, who's a pediatric cardiologist. So Dr. Ramroop, we, we talked about a congenital and acquired pediatric heart diseases. Um, at what point in time would surgical intervention be necessary? Um, for instance, if uh, these patients are decompensating or they become cyanotic, um, and uh, what symptoms would they have? And you would have to say uh, surgery is necessary. So um, it is the, the criteria for surgical intervention are uh, 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 diagnosis dependent. So different lesions would require intervention at, at different times. Uh, in general, one would want to intervene as late as possible because before somebody, before you subject a patient to the potential risks, and there are always risks with, with, with heart surgery or open heart surgery, um, one wants to make sure the kid is, is bigger, uh, so they're stronger and have a better recovery time. And also a bigger heart is, is technically more, more, uh, more easily operated on. And also that you want to give as much, you know, ample opportunity for, for the condition to get better on its own, which often happens. Um, in the case of, for instance, an example of a VSD, which is a hole between the bottom pumping chambers, if that hole is very large, um, the first step would be to manage with medicines. One, to give that hole an opportunity to get smaller, and two, to, to get the patient uh, symptomatically better. But if growth is poor, um, or symptoms are, are profound or severe, uh, one would want to do an operation. And that's typically undertaken around six months of life. Many other con congenital heart diseases like Tetralogy of Fallot, which is a combination of a BSD and a pulmonary stenosis, which is the outflow tract that goes to the lungs, 
uh, is also usually performed. Uh, that surgery is usually performed at around six months. Uh, and, but al you know, alternatively, there's a form of uh, heart disease known as transposition of the great arteries, where the aorta comes off the right ventricle when it's meant to come off the left, and the pulmonary artery comes is connected to the to the left ventricle and it's meant to be connected to the right. That surgery is undertaken shortly after birth, so within a few weeks. So again, it depends on the nature of, of the condition. Are these surgical services available here? So um, we have intermittent availability of some of, of surgeries. So there's a team that comes, or different teams that come every three months or so. So around four times or five times per year, uh, that surgery is available. We do uh, cherry pick the, the cases. So we do these simpler things like uh, ASDs, VSDs. Uh, PDAs or repeat conductors arteriosus, uh, and some forms of tetralogy of flow once it's on the simpler end of the spectrum. Uh, for more complicated things, uh, we have different mechanisms, but one of the main avenues for people to, to get to access surgery is through the Children's Life Fund, which will sponsor surgeries um, up to a limit uh, at our partner centers that are in the US, Canada, Cayman Islands. Right. Are there any other social services that are available be besides the Children Life Fund? Yes. Yeah, so, so care of pediatric patients undergoing cardiac surgery extends beyond just the medical and surgical treatments. There's emotional, psychological, and socioeconomic impacts on the child and their family, which can be substantial. So, multidisciplinary approach is essential to address these challenges. So, there's several categories of staff that can be helpful. So, social workers for one who can assist the families with the emotional and social challenges of a child's illness. And this includes helping the families navigate the healthcare system, access financial assistance, and connect with community resources. Uh, psycholo psychologists are also very important. Uh, since the child's illness and hospitalization can be traumatic, psycholo psychologists and counselors offer emotional and mental health support to the patient and their family. Um, physical and occupational therapists uh, 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 integral part of the team as well, where after surgery, some children might need help regaining strength, mobility, and daily living skills. So therapists assist in the rehabilitation process. Uh, there's a palliative care team uh, in which is cases where the prognosis is uncertain or considered to be very grim. Uh, these, this team will offer uh, symptom management, emotional support, and, and sometimes end-of-life care planning if that is needed. And then support groups, which is involves connecting families with others who have gone through similar experiences, can offer emotional support and practical advice. Uh, and this is a new initiative that is being coordinated with the social workers and should be implemented soon. It's essential. Go ahead. That's okay. Now, I was just going to ask, for those who have had um, surgical intervention for different disorders, um, if, could you give us an example of what their prognosis would be like? It so um, there have been major advances in surgical care and ICU care, uh, and even our diagnostic um, uh, uh, capabilities over the last 20 or even 10 years. Um, the prognosis for most types of heart disease are very good. There are a few that do carry a very poor prognosis. Um, I think maybe the most difficult type would be hypoplastic left heart syndrome, uh, which carries probably an overall prognosis of around 30% mortality. And, and even in those who survive, there's significant neurodevelopmental problems in a large proportion of those. But the, those represent a small, now a very small subset of patients, and the majority of patients with heart disease um, 
I picked up earlier because of uh, close, close uh, like um, uh, investigations and, and clinical examinations that are done uh, in the in the pediatric uh, sector and um, and robust referral uh, systems. So early early diagnosis and and increased um, skills uh, and techniques around surgical and ICU care has made prognosis very good for most of them with a mortality of around 5% or 3%. Are there any patients that made an impression on you? I know in particular for myself, I hate to see kids suffer. So, I mean, because they're so innocent. And is there any children that uh, made a mark on your career? I think, um, as I mentioned early on, when, when you see see patients, um, these, these pediatric patients, their, their overall um, way of dealing with illness, I think is a, a, a page we could take out of their books as adults. Um, they, they cope with illness differently. Of course, their understanding is different, but they, are, they, they, they bounce back so readily. And I, and I think um, seeing a patient after, like pediatric patients after open heart, open heart surgery, and then the very next day, they, they're sitting up, ready to walk around, and, and that kind of resilience in the pediatric patients is is um, very inspiring. Uh, I think um, the, the the other thing is, you know, people always talk about how how sad it is to work with or or to work with children who are sick, and and that is that is that is a real a real phenomenon. But um, and you you won't be able to save all. And that's something that we have to accept. Not everything is in our in our hands, um, but we do save a, a, a large proportion, and and uh, we just do our best to help each patient and each family make it through. And that's that's what keeps us going. Do you get like this depressed sometimes, or? Yeah, I think um, uh, that kind of emotional fatigue is is something that all doctors face. Um, uh, I think uh, we were mentioning counselors and all, and I think that might be a useful adjunct, and it is available within the healthcare system for physicians. Um, you know, you should take care of yourself because you're the person that has to take care of others. So certainly it, it could be very taxing, but again, uh, you hold the winds close and, and that kind of motivates you to carry on. So what exactly are you currently working on? Are you doing any particular studies or do you have any current publications? So right now, um, I think locally, there are a couple of things. So we look at uh, more relevant to the discussion we were having. Uh, one work that, that, that is in progress is looking at the patterns of multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children in Trinidad and Tobago, and in particular, it's cardiac presentation. So post this global outbreak of COVID-19, there's been an emergence of MIS-C, uh, which is similarity in presentation to Kawasaki disease and can similarly affect the coronary arteries and or heart function. So ongoing research focuses on the epidemiology and, and cardiac presentations of MIS-C in Trinidad. Preliminary findings suggest that there's a distinct pattern that may differ from other global cohorts. Uh, so this is an important, that underscores the importance of regional regional studies. And in part, um, additionally, the team is also looking at the prevalence of rheumatic fever in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, which, as we mentioned, stems from an untreated streptococcal infection and can have debilitating heart, heart sequelae. Um, we're currently undertaking a comprehensive study 
to describe the prevalence of rheumatic fever and its and its sequelae rheumatic heart disease, uh, with our goal being to inform public health strategies and medical intervention uh, in the region. Um, how exactly is our um, MISI different from other countries? <laughs> so I think um, even early in the so even early in the in the pandemic, uh, the f the first group that was that was defined as having MISI were were those of of um, of uh, uh, Caribbean descent and and also of Asian descent. Those are kind of the high risk populations and. Uh, our pop and, and that was within a predominantly Caucasian population in the UK. It was first um, first first defined, uh, and then subsequently in Italy. Um, so it seems that our, there's a genetic component, and those with with that kind of predilection that's been described in the first studies shows that our population is at high risk. So I think overall we had a, a higher number of patients. Um, uh, or a higher prevalence than what would have been expected otherwise, and the number the number of patients with heart heart um, manifestations I think is higher than what we've seen um, in the international population or cohorts. Um, uh, despite that, the the outcomes have been very good. Okay, <clears throat> so is the prognosis better or worse than global population? Um, I think our 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 prognosis was very good. But I think it's because we had the, the benefit of a heads up from the international community before it came before it came to Trinidad. So we did have things put in place to treat them, and we treated aggressively and early in, in our population. So the outcomes have been have been excellent, actually. Right. So, Dr. Ramru, do you work privately, and and how can you be reached? <laughs> um, well, for, for 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 seeking consultations or more information about pediatric cardiology, you could reach out to me at the pediatric cardiology unit at the Eric Williams Medical Sciences Complex. Um, but if you want a more personalized or private consultation, I'm also available at um, ABC Pediatrics in St. Augustine, uh, Parkview Practice and Chiefs Medical Center. And it's always a pleasure to assist families and ensure the heart health of our children. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Amru, for being here, for being very educational and informative. I want to thank my co-host, Saskia, and for our listeners out there. And we do wish everyone a great day. Thank, thank you very you. much for having Thank you so much, Dr. Rambokas, and also to Dr. Ramroop for that informative session. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio, Freedom 106.5.